0: You please be turning in your Bibles to Two Kings chapter twenty. Two Kings chapter twenty. In those, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, it is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps, by which it had gone down the steps of Ahaz. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come from a far country, from Babylon, He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah, and all his might, and how he made the pool and the conduit, and brought water into the city... Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. So we return this evening to our series in Two Kings, where we have been considering the reign of King Hezekiah, one of the handful of godly kings of Judah. He reigned over God's people in the southern kingdom, For 29 years, some years either side of 700 BC, he was a godly forerunner of Jesus Christ. As such, he points forward in some small measure to the godly and eternal reign of Jesus Christ over all of God's people. You may recall that Hezekiah is one of only eight kings of Judah following the days of King David, who is introduced to us in Scripture as one who did what is right in the eyes of the Lord. You see that there in chapter 18, verse 3. So only 8 out of 19 kings of Judah get that commendation. And only 2 of them get the further accolade for having got rid of the high places, the hilltop sites, where idolatry was practiced. Hezekiah, along with one that followed after him, Josiah, got both of those commendations. His reign was long and generally good. He is one of the best of the best. But in this final chapter of his life, the emphasis is on his frailty and his folly. As with every Bible hero, God's word does not let us spend too long in hero worship. Even the best of the best are only pointers and types of the perfectly wise king who was then still to come. The king who has now come, whose birth we have been recently celebrating, the one who deserves all of our worship and loyalty. The one of whom we have just sung, hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Of whom we could equally have sung, hail to the Lord's anointed, great Hezekiah's greater son. But in this chapter, We see his frailty when Hezekiah becomes literally sick unto death. And then in quick succession, we are shown that he was not only physically frail, but prone to one folly after another. So as we go through this chapter, we see in quick succession the weakness in his body, then weakness in his theology, then weakness in his faith, and then weakness in his wisdom. But alongside this human frailty and folly, we also see something amazing, and that is God's constant and amazing grace that he shows towards his weak servant. So as grace and folly meet, the simple message of this passage is that God's grace overflows, notwithstanding human folly. And that I trust will be encouraging to us on at least two counts. First, as fellow believers with Hezekiah, we may know that the same God who was amazingly gracious towards him despite his frailties is similarly gracious towards us despite our many frailties. And secondly, we will see how Hezekiah points forward to Jesus Christ, who knew all about human frailty and yet was without sin. He points forward to the christ who did not have 15 years added to his life when he was facing death in his thirties, who died and is alive forevermore, and who now reigns as our risen and invincible king, in whom there is no folly or frailty whatsoever. So on those two counts, I hope we will be encouraged. So let's run through these frailties and follies. First, his physical frailty. We're told in chapter 18, that he was 25 when he began to reign and that he reigned for 29 years until he was, what, 54 or so. And so you'll see that this illness that should have killed him must have been in his late 30s, 15 or so years before the end of that 29 year reign. So he was not an old man. And on being told by the prophet Isaiah that his illness was fatal and that he was about to die, his response, his tears, his grief, are entirely understandable. Literally, he wept a great weeping, verse 3. What was this illness? Well, in verse 7, we're told that he had some kind of boil, no doubt serious, no doubt septic. And it's the same word that is used for the sixth plague upon the Egyptians uh, back in Exodus chapter 9, the plague of boils. And the only other place this word occurs, apart from in relation to Hezekiah, is in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. So Hezekiah's tears are not only flowing from being told that he will not recover, but also from, no doubt, his interpretation of his affliction as signifying God's disapproval or punishment of disobedience. And that may go some way in explaining why he prays as he does in verse 3, pleading his own faithfulness and goodness. O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and done what is good in your sight. In other words, I don't deserve to be under your curse as one who has rejected your law. But is that a theologically sound basis for prayer, either his prayer or ours? Is this a model prayer for us to emulate? Or does it reveal a weakness in Hezekiah's theology that that accompanies or is exposed by his physical weakness? As I say, the most positive interpretation we can put on this prayer is by viewing it through the lens of Deuteronomy 28. Perceiving that he has earned God's displeasure, he pleads his relative innocence before God. But where are we taught to base our prayers on our own righteousness? Hezekiah's own prophet, Isaiah, teaches a better way, which we find in Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah says, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Or as the AV has it, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah reminds anyone who tries to justify himself before God on the basis of his own good works that our iniquities, they take us away. There is none who calls upon God's name. He has made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. In other words, according to Isaiah, we need to base our prayers on the righteousness of another, not on our own good deeds. So in that same chapter in Isaiah... He says, Lord God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. We need God to rend the heavens, to come into our world and take away our iniquities before our iniquities carry us away. And that, of course, is what God has done in sending Jesus Christ as the Messiah, promised not just in our New Testaments, but in Hezekiah's Bible as well. Wisdom is to trust in Christ's righteousness, not our own. Otherwise, we would do better, as Hezekiah himself would know well from Job and Proverbs, we would do better just to lay our hands on our mouths and say nothing. So when we pray, let our prayers be on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone and not our own. Let us not say, I deserve better than this. I've been a faithful Christian for so many years. I've served the church wholeheartedly all my days. Please take away this issue from me on that basis. No, even our righteous deeds must be sanctified by Christ, or they are like a polluted garment. So do we then expect a stern response from God to Hezekiah's theologically inadequate prayer and his focus on himself? Let's see how God does respond when he has regard to Hezekiah. In his weakness. He speaks twice through his prophet Isaiah. But the first communication in verse one leaves us scratching our heads. Thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die. You shall not recover. Literally, you shall not live. Was that a false prophecy? Was Isaiah mistaken? Or did God change his mind in the few moments that it took Isaiah to walk out? from Hezekiah's presence as far as the middle courtyard before the Lord commanded him to about turn. Well, before we jump to those conclusions, we'd do well to remember a couple of similar examples of apparent change of mind. For example, remember the prophet Nathan, when David asks him if he, David, should build the temple. Nathan's immediate answer is yes, go right ahead. But that same night... Nathan brought back to him a very different word from the Lord in 2 Samuel. Go ahead and build quickly becomes, actually, it is Solomon who shall build my temple. Then there's the message of the prophet Jonah delivered to the Ninevites. 40 days and you will be overthrown, Jonah chapter three. But they repent and are spared. So the way to read that prophecy to Nineveh and the prophecy to Hezekiah is to read in an implicit but for. But for this, that will certainly happen. But for the Ninevites repenting of their sins, they would certainly have been destroyed. But for Hezekiah's prayer, he would certainly have died. More than that, but for a divine intervention, he would certainly have died. In other words, we're to understand that first message that Isaiah brings to Hezekiah. As Hezekiah, your illness is so thoroughly fatal, according to all the ordinary laws of medicine, that but for some miracle, there is zero possibility of recovery. So set your house in order and prepare to die. But then comes the divine intervention. God did not only move Isaiah to prophesy to Hezekiah, He moved Hezekiah to pray in response to that prophecy. And then he sends Isaiah back to unveil a little more of his will, previously hidden, which to ordinary human eyes changes everything. It was, of course, God's intention all along to hear the prayer that he himself initiated. But that doesn't make the prayer redundant. But for Hezekiah's prayer, he would not have been healed. It just means that behind every second cause there is a first cause, as there is for everything, and that first cause is always God. His intervention is supernatural. It is also super gracious. Hezekiah's prayer may be theologically deficient, but that doesn't prevent God's response, having heard his prayer, from being superabundantly gracious. On the third day, you shall be healed and well enough to return to the house of the Lord. Not only that, I will add 15 years to your life. Not only that, but I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the Assyrians. Why? For my sake and for my servant David's sake. It's rather like a loving parent who has determined to bestow some good gift on his three-year-old but he wants to teach him the word please before he bestows it. And when the infant finally manages to stutter out the word, perhaps mispronouncing it as he does, the parent gives the gift and more that he was going to give all along. That gift, in this case, is way bigger than Hezekiah could even have contemplated. So it is with our generous Heavenly Father. Our prayers may be theologically very ill-formed. We may stutter and stumble over them. Or get distracted halfway through our childish sentences, as we so often do. But we have a God who is determined to bless. He determined in eternity that he would bless his children. And he is not going to be turned aside from that determination to bless us by our physical frailty or even by our theological frailty. So let us be encouraged to pray. And may we never think that God will only respond favorably If our prayer is theologically perfect, even less should we ever think that it is either our orthodoxy or our own walking in faithfulness with a whole heart that will persuade God to open his hand towards us. But what then of Hezekiah's extra 15 years? Do they not signal that God has changed his mind as to the appointed time for Hezekiah to die Is it that God had previously intended that Hezekiah should live until he was 38, 39, but now he has been persuaded to tack on another 15 or so years, so that now he'll die as he in fact does around 54? Well, that way of reading it would be at odds with plenty of other scriptures, not least Psalm 139, part of which we sang last Sunday evening, and I thought we could sing again this Sunday evening at the end of the service. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Or we could just look back to the previous chapter, chapter 19, verse 25, where Assyrian king Sennacherib is told that his days were determined long ago and that God knew his sitting down and his going out as a matter of his eternal and therefore unchanging foreknowledge and determination. It's perfectly true that but for Hezekiah's prayer and but for God's intervention, Hezekiah would have died aged 39. But those but-fors, those contingencies, were all within God's eternal plan and written unchangeably in his book. Everything that happens in time is but the outworking of what God has determined eternally. The dependencies, the contingencies that he has ordained in time are genuine dependencies. But God knows that the contingency will happen just as surely as he knows what will follow from it. To put it more simply, God planned in eternity to bless his people. And we should give thanks that God's plans are unchangeable. Those plans must work themselves out in time, involving the use of means and signs that he appoints. But that doesn't mean that we ever sit back and think, it doesn't matter what I do or how I live. It doesn't matter whether I make use of the means of grace that God has appointed. The cake of figs was an appointed means or a sign that God had appointed. Again, but a second cause following on from the first cause, who is always God. Sitting under God's word, week by week, is a means of grace that he has appointed for our spiritual health and growth. It would be as foolish to think that God will keep us healthy whether we sit under his word or not, as it would be to think that he will keep us physically healthy whether we eat food or not. His intention to bless his people is unchanging, even when his people are frail and foolish but that gives us no warrant to ignore the means that he is appointed. So we've considered Hezekiah's physical frailty and his theological frailty. There are still a couple more follies and frailties from which we are to learn, but more briefly. In verses 8 to 11, we see a demand for another sign in which Hezekiah comes rather close to putting God to the test, or at least displaying a lack of faith. He has already been told in verse five that on the third day he will be healed and back worshipping in the temple. You'd think that to go from your deathbed to the to the front seat in the temple in three days would be a pretty compelling sign in itself of divine favour. You'd think that would be pretty that, that would be enough to be pretty confident that God's longer term promises of deliverance from the Assyrians would also come to pass. But no, Hezekiah wants a better sign than that, and he wants it now. Three days is, after all, three days away. What was he thinking? Well, he might be thinking of Gideon, who asked God for a sign, the the sign of the wet and dry fleeces, back in Judges chapter 6. But Gideon asked for that sign because he wanted to be sure that it was God's will that he go into battle against the Midianites. Hezekiah doesn't need a sign, as Gideon did. He just needs to wait three days. Or closer to hand, he might be thinking of an incident when his father, King Ahaz, was positively told by God to ask for a sign, and Ahaz piously refused to do what he was told. Hezekiah might well be thinking, well, Ahaz should have asked for a sign and didn't, so I had better ask for one, or I may. The difference, of course, is that Ahaz was told to ask for a sign. Hezekiah wasn't. So he asks God to turn back the sundial, as it were, so that the shadow goes back up the steps. Not any old steps, but the steps of Ahaz, just in case we miss the connection with his father's disobedient refusal. To ask the son to go forward ten steps would be too easy a trick, he reasons. Anyone could do that. No, I want to see it go backwards 10 steps. Did he need that sign? No. Was he commanded to ask for it? No. Will God refuse it on the grounds that, as Alec Mattia puts it, it's wrong to treat God like a performing animal with faith as the sugar lump, re- rewarding the trick? Well, even now, God shows that his grace is more lavish than our folly. He grants Hezekiah's request. The sun, or at least its shadow, obediently moves back ten steps, up the steps of Ahaz. Hezekiah is not reproved or chastised for his weak faith. On the contrary, God has shown once again that faith as small as a mustard seed, even as faint as a smoldering wick, will not be rejected. Once again, he proves his abounding graciousness in strengthening the weak faith of Hezekiah by giving him this sign. And more than that, he gives him a sign that is pertinent to the word that he has just spoken to Hezekiah. The sign shows that he is the Lord of time, the Lord of the years, creator of time, sovereign over time, and everything that happens in time. What more compelling way to show this in an age when your sundial is your clock? But again, are we to emulate King Hezekiah in demanding signs from God? Generally not. We are to trust his word as he has given it to us. We are not to say, I will trust God if he first proves himself trustworthy to my satisfaction. God is very generous, but we must not be presumptuous in response. Lastly, we have the episode of the Babylonian envoys in verses 12 to 19. The king of Babylon hears of Hezekiah's sickness. He pops down to Clinton's, gets a get well card, and sends it along with a present. Hezekiah takes the kind gesture at face value. That may or may not have been wise. What was certainly unwise is that he gives the messengers a complete guided tour of his storerooms. And we're left in no doubt that that was a foolish thing to do in at least a couple of places. For one thing, there's the parallel account of this episode in 2 Chronicles, chapter 32, which says plainly that after Hezekiah recovered from his illness, his heart was proud. And we can see just a hint of that pride when he is quizzed by Isaiah, and he replies that these well-wishers have come from a far country. How well-regarded you must be to have well-wishers traveling not only from a faraway country, but from the next up-and-coming world empire, Babylon, just to wish you a speedy recovery. But even more clearly, we see Hezekiah's folly in the next message that Isaiah is sent to deliver him. And a tragic message it is. All of these possessions that you've been showing off to the Babylonians are very soon going to be carried off by the Babylonians. Not only that, but some of your own sons, a term which can equally refer to later generations, shall be carried off into humiliating servitude by those same people that you have been showing off to. In trying to impress the world, Hezekiah had got too close to the world. As it says in James, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Perhaps he had let the security of knowing that he would live for sure another 15 years, come what may, go to his head. When you think that you cannot possibly fall or fail, that's often when you are most spiritually vulnerable. Whatever was going on in his mind, God knew that he needed to be pulled up short at this point. And he does that with Isaiah's prophecy in these verses. So Hezekiah and, and More broadly, Judah is in the process of turning her back on God. So here, Judah is given a plain warning of where that will lead. But even in that warning, there is grace. Every warning to turn from danger and disaster is gracious. Not only that, but God graciously holds back the disaster, as it were, until after Hezekiah's reign Jerusalem can hardly say that she had no time to heed this warning, to turn from her friendship with the world and back to the living God. But she would not. Hezekiah's response is far from commendable. Yes, he acknowledges that the word of the Lord is good. But the goodness that he sees in it is that God's judgment will not fall upon his generation, but upon his descendants. And so we come to this rather disappointing end to the account of one of Judah's greatest kings. But if Hezekiah in the end disappoints, God does not disappoint. In all of these ways, we have seen man's frailty and folly being met with God's grace. And every time we see God's grace overflowing in generosity. So what's that to us? First, we must all know and acknowledge our human frailty. We would be fools not to think that today is the day for setting our house in order. A day will come soon enough when everything we have in this world will be carried off, just as everything in Hezekiah's house would soon enough be carried off. It is most unlikely that God will reveal to any of us when that day will be in the way that he graciously did for Hezekiah. I rather doubt it would do any of us much good if he did reveal that. That degree of earthly security or certainty didn't do Hezekiah much good. It would be exceptional if he did reveal that to us. But meanwhile, the only wise course is to set our house in order today. And how are we to do that? Quite simply, by being ready to meet our maker today not hoping that we will be ready on the basis of our own good works, not demanding further signs or proof or revelation from God than he has already given, but simply by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, great Hezekiah's greater son, who fully experienced human frailty, even unto death, who experienced that frailty in order to be able to carry off, not our worldly possessions, but all our worldly sins, nailing them to the cross and thereby graciously establishing a just basis whereby God could grant his people not 15 more years of life, but eternal life, eternal peace, and eternal security. Knowing that, we can sing with Richard Baxter, if life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why should I be sad to soar to endless day so let us not fall into hezekiah's folly of pleading our own righteousness nor his folly of demanding signs from god beyond the sign of jesus christ nailed to the cross nor his folly of thinking that there is any security to be had in alliances with the things and people that look most impressive in this world we know that we are frail and foolish But God is gracious, superabundantly gracious. Let us fly to him through the grace and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are more gracious than we are foolish. We thank you for your patience, your long-suffering with us. We thank you for your eternal plan, not only to turn us from folly, but to turn us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may trust in him alone and that we may know your eternal graciousness and blessing. So we thank you for him. Amen.